0: Thanks, Tim. Uh, great to have that uh, reading open, if you can keep it there. That'll be where we'll be uh, diving in today. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us make sense of what's just been read. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you have preserved uh, this scripture, this letter that was written to a church 2,000 years ago. I pray this morning that, that this same letter, Lord, might live here in Oran Park, Thank you, Father, your Holy Spirit will enable us to have insight and understanding, and we pray, Father, that through it you might challenge and change us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, well, I want to start with a bit of trivia today, Uh, introduce you to someone you may not have heard of before. Uh, His name is Robert Estienne. He was uh, the royal typographer. Uh, to one of the French kings a very long time ago, as you can see. Uh, The intriguing bit about Robert, we can call him Bob perhaps this morning, uh, about Robert is that he was the first man in 1550 to put together the chapter breaks in the Bible that we have and the verses that we have today. So I don't know if you know, when Paul was writing it, he wasn't writing in chapters, who knew? And he definitely wasn't writing tiny little numbers down and calling them verses. That didn't happen until much, much later, 1,500 years later. So that's good to know, isn't it? That's, that's helpful. The, the chapter divisions are helpful in that they help us find quickly where the reading is, but at times they can obscure how we read a text So, for instance, when we get to chapter 14 here, we think Paul has just been for a walk around the block, had a cuppa, and now has decided to write chapter 14 of Romans. That's very unlikely, okay? And so I want you to see what it looks like if we read from the end of chapter 13 straight into 14 verse 1. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Accept one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, can you see here that what he's on about is about how we live a holy life? Don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the response to that in chapter 14 is a bunch of ways that you could organise your life to stay holy, okay? And it could be about food and it could be about days, but it's organising your life to stay holy. So it isn't bang, chapter break, new thought, it's actually the flow on from what he's already been speaking about. And so with that in mind, as per all these uh, messages that I've been doing recently, who would have known? Context is key. We need to have a look at what's happening around the text to make sense of it. As well as that, we need to know a little bit about the background. And so I'll refresh your minds about the church in Rome. The church in Rome was made up of people who were formerly Jews. And they were culturally unique. They stood out on the landscape of the whole of the Roman Empire. Jews were odd. Uh, They were an unusual bunch of people. And we're going to see some of the ways that they were unusual. But they stood out. They were very different. They were culturally unique. The other part of the church in Rome was Gentiles. That's basically a big word for everyone who's not a Jew. Okay? So it's a bucket word. So Jews and Gentiles. And they were identifiably pagan because everyone who wasn't a Jew was a pagan. Okay? They worshipped other gods, multitudes of them, they were highly superstitious and they were involved in everyday religion of the Roman Empire. Take people from those backgrounds, introduce them to Jesus and wrap them up and now you have the church in Rome. And of course, that's a bit like new life today. It's people from different backgrounds, people with different experiences, maybe even people from different countries, yes, all come together here. Now, it's right that we recognise we're different. It's right that we bring baggage, we bring background into being in church today. And then we need to work out how do we be this one body of Christ right here in Oran Park. So if we go with those divisions, we can see some of the distinctives of the Jews were found in food. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 11 a fantastic chapter if you want to kind of uh, catch up with it. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 11, we see this. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So the Jews had very strict food laws. That was just part of how they were made up. And so they made a careful selection on what they would or wouldn't eat, and it wasn't just the kind of meat; it was also the way it was prepared. So you guys have heard of kosher, okay? That's about preparing it in a particular way so the blood is out of the meat, okay? So it wasn't just kinds of animals you could and couldn't eat, but even the way they were prepared was done differently. In contrast, those from a pagan background would just drop down to the meat uh, to the to the market and they'd grab whatever meat was there. And it could well have been offered to an idol, or it could well have been prepared in a non-kosher way, but they just throw another steak on the barbie. okay? Whereas the Jews were very, very particular about what they did. But it wasn't just food. It was also about special days. If we listen to Exodus chapter 12, we're in one of the first five books of the Bible. God has saved his people from Egypt and drawn them out. And then he says, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Does anyone know what that day is called? The Passover. That's the day they're remembering, the Passover day. And so the Jews took it very seriously. We have a holiday on Passover because God told us to, right? Part of being holy was to have a holy calendar with these sort of things on it. And so there were Jewish celebrations throughout the year. For the pagans, they had national days as well, a bit like our Australia Day, right? That They had days that everybody was into, and it was invariably for pagan gods, or for emperors who were more or less pagan gods. (laughs) Uh, So they had a holiday system for their gods, and the Jews had one for theirs, okay? So special days were a point of tension, and so... Throwing a steak on the barbie on Australia Day sums up basically what's, uh, what's, uh, what's going on. The other, thing that, uh, the other tension that was in this church was a, a beautiful tension that exists for us still today. We have a profound freedom when we meet Jesus as our Lord. Have a listen to these wonderful words from Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What it's basically saying is, you were doing religion before, and now you've met salvation by faith in Jesus through what he did on the cross, you are free from having to earn your salvation. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. How wonderful. That's the good news of the gospel, right? Great freedom is ours. But with great freedom comes great what? Responsibility. Yes, we're all Spider-Man fans. That's great. Here's what it says in 1 Peter. It says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So there's huge freedom. You are saved. You are justified. You are sanctified. That's all there. And you need to live a holy life. So great freedom and great responsibility. Now, that's a tension for us here today. And uh, I think we are much, much more familiar with the freedom than the responsibility. Paul was a defender of these great truths, holiness and freedom. And we see him call out two groups in the letter to the Galatians. This is the loving letter he wrote to the church in Galatia. You ready? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, what he's saying is, guys, you're saved by trusting in Jesus. Don't go back to Jewish works, they don't work. So he rebuked the Galatians. And then he also rebuked the Apostle Peter. You know, the one that. Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Have a listen to what Paul said to Peter when he got it wrong. Now, it says up there, when Cephas came to Antioch, it's another name for Peter. The Bible's confusing like that, but it's Peter, okay? When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. What is happening is, there used to be great fellowship in the church, Jew and Gentile together. And then Peter went, oh, some of these more law people have come here. I'm going to step back from the Gentiles. And Paul goes, that won't do. You're one in Jesus. You can't start separating now. And so he opposed him to his face. So what I want you to see is Paul is well and truly able to be a passionate protector of those two things, freedom and holiness. And when he thinks they're out of line, he'll call people out. Good to know. All right, I want to have a look at, uh, at, we're going to get to the the, the, um, chapter 14 here. I want to look at looking down. So there's two ways you can look down. You can look down at a stunning view. Or you can look down with a superior version. You go, I'm better than you. Okay, that's a one way to look down. I'm looking down on you, not from on high, but from moral superiority. Have a look at that in uh, in Romans chapter 14, 1 to 4. Accept those whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything. Must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the other one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So he's saying here there were some problems. Some people were looking down their noses at one another. And I want to get some of the general principles from the first four, four verses out, because they'll set us up for the rest of this chapter. The first thing we want to see is that these are called disputable matters. going I think, well, anytime Christians try and work out what coffee to have or what biscuits to have in the morning, we can dispute anything, right, if we want. But I want you to see they're not salvation matters. Because Paul doesn't say, you foolish Romans, pull your heads in and start eating the steak. He doesn't say that. He says they're disputable matters, things that Christians can disagree on and do, but he doesn't stop them. The other thing we see is that the people in the church are of varied faith. Now, Paul calls them weak and strong in faith, but basically what he means is there are different levels. There are more tender and less tender consciences. Does does that make sense? People who are more sensitive and not as sensitive. There's varied faith. And what he's worried about is the sneer or the frown. The sneer of contempt or the frown of judgment. You know the one. We don't do that. Or the, I can't sneer, can I? My face isn't wired up to sneer. Um, But the sneer is basically saying, ooh, yuck, that's not us. Uh, And so the sneer or the frown is looking down your nose at another brother or sister. And it's happening in this church and Paul wants to speak to it. He points out, though, that God is their master, so they must be Christians. God is their master. It's not non-Christians and Christians. God is their master. And it says further than that, God will be able to make them stand. So if they like meat or they keep a different calendar to you, they're not going to fail to be saved on the final day. God will enable them to stand. And so that means Paul does not condemn them. He doesn't write an angry letter. He writes an appealing letter to ask them to live together in unity. And I think that's a good word for us to hear today. Now, often we can feel lonely. Uh, We can feel lonely uh, personally. We can feel lonely even perhaps spiritually. But in these next verses here, I want you to see that we are never alone. The Christian always has God by their side And Christian fellowship to walk with. Have a look at verses five to eight. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever uh, whoever abstains does so to the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. You're God's chosen person. You're never alone in your decision making. And so whether days or dinner is disputed, you need to know that you have an ever-present companion. There's someone always in the equation with you, and that's God who you're living your life to. And so you can see it here in the bit that's highlighted there. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Our whole lives are God's. When you said, God, I'm yours, have you said that? If you haven't, thanks, Nelson's it's good to know, mate. If you haven't, today's a great day to say yes to God. But when we, do, when we say yes to God, we say, God, my whole life is yours. You can have me, all of me. And when we do that, he is part of every single aspect of our lives. So whether we live, we live to the Lord. Whether we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we eat or drink, it's all with the Lord in the equation. Why? Because you invited him in. Make sense? Okay, so we're never alone. Now, I, I like watching kids, uh, kids play games, and particularly when the games go astray, these kids look very happy. But, uh, but let's imagine the game goes astray, and then one of the kids goes, this happened to me actually, I used to live in Darwin, and when I came back from Darwin, I, we, we never played soccer because it was too hot, you just couldn't do it, right? It was just, we didn't. And so I came down, and uh, the boys were playing soccer, right? And so I thought I'd go and kick the ball, and they stopped the whole game, and all the boys pointed at me and said, you're offside, I so I don't know what that is. And there was a whole debate about whether I was or wasn't an offside and all the rest of it. And it's fascinating, right? When you watch kids have a discussion, when they're trying to work out what's fair, what's right, what's wrong, they're always... Rah, 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 and somebody will often assert themselves and say no. But what happens when an adult comes along? It all stops. And everybody, rather than this stuff, everybody starts making their appeal to the greater one who's going to be able to say what's right or wrong. Do you know that experience? So it goes from this squabble to this squabble. And I want you to see that's exactly what Paul says here. One day, you're going to meet a judge, and you need to stop doing that with each other. For this very reason, he says in verse 9, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat with them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. Do you see how this works? What it's saying is you need to stop judging. You need to stop having a horizontal squabble. Because sooner or later, daddy's going to turn up. And he's got the ultimate answer. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And you'll have to give an account to God. Stop judging one another. Leave the judgment to God. Does that make sense? And so the new way to live, if you've got that in your mind, that one day God's going to judge us all, if you've got that in your mind, the right actions then are to no longer be judging Stop this horizontal bickering stuff. No longer be judging and instead place no stumbling block in the way of another. When he says this, you're thinking, I don't have any stump. I didn't bring a stumbling block with me to put down. But it's when we take our conscience and make it somebody else's obligation that we create a stumbling block. Are you with me? So this is something that I'm really worried about as a Christian, that's your conscience. But now I'm going to make my concern your obligation. Do you see that? And so, uh, yeah, the example, uh, my my sister was uh, in the Gambia in Africa as a missionary for a couple of years. And she lived there with some German missionaries. And they told her that playing cards were the devil's cards. And so she couldn't play patience in the middle of the bush In Africa, with nothing else, she was very, very frustrated that these cards had been identified as the devil's cards and that she could no longer play with them. But here it was, she knew that she couldn't cause the other people to stumble by playing patience because it really was a big deal for them. Put them away. Don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. It's up to those. Even though she was free, she chose not to do that. Uh, now, uh, does anyone lose socks in the washing? Yep. If you've seen mine, let me know. I suspect they're often on safari, but look, I was, I was thinking about, I was thinking about lost socks and I was thinking how, um, how much more tragic it would be if your washing was put out in Venice here. Um, you, you literally wheel your washing out over the, um, over the canal. And I kind of figure there is, there's a great place for lost socks, isn't there? They just got washed away with the tide. How beautiful. Uh, But I want to tell you, I think that Western society has a lost sock. The whole of Western society has a lost sock. There's something that we know we should have vaguely in the back of our minds, but we've lost it. We don't know where it's gone. It's a thing called a conscience. Have you heard of that? You have heard of it? That's really good, church. Because most people out there haven't. Or if they have, they've lost it. Where did I put my conscience? I haven't thought about that very much. Conscience. It used to be that your conscience would condemn you, you know, you're doing something wrong and a little voice goes off in your head and says, I shouldn't be doing that. Do you you remember this feeling? It used to be a thing. These days, uh, we, we probably counsel that out of people, don't we? Don't listen to that negative voice. Sometimes the things that we're doing are wrong and our conscience is speaking to us and telling us that we shouldn't do it. But I think the whole of Western society has lost the conscience, and we need to warm ours up. We need to discover it again. We need to be alive to it. Have a look with me at verses 14 to 19. I want you to see Paul's confidence here. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing in itself is unclean. For if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed by, uh, because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval." Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So the first thing I want you to note is that Paul is really quite sure that there's no problem with eating meat. He gets it. You remember the reading we had from uh, from Mark chapter 7? Where Jesus said, the food comes in here and then goes into your stomach and then out. And he says, that is never going to defile you. Instead, he says, what defiles you comes from inside. What defiles you comes from your heart. That's what makes you unclean. So Paul says, I'm pretty convinced that food isn't a problem. But if you think it is a problem, then your conscience will condemn. Your conscience will condemn. And so he says it matters that we have tender consciences in our midst. Now, I couldn't think of a picture for consciences, so I've got it with tender steak. Is that okay? Incidentally, that's the way to have it. And funnily enough, in Galatians, Paul says, Paul says that some people's consciences have been seared as in with a hot iron. And what he means is they've stopped being soft. They've been burnt and scarred. No longer soft consciences. See, here's a beautiful stake. Tender consciences matter. We should treasure them rather than reject them or make fun of them. Tender consciences. Then he says that we shouldn't use our freedom. It shouldn't be exercised so that it becomes despised. Let me explain what I mean by that. So if my sister had said, these are cards with numbers and little symbols on them, you guys are crackers, okay? I'm going to keep playing uh, playing patience and I'm going to do it on the dinner table in front of all of you because Jesus has forgiven me and the cards are okay. If she'd done that, right? Then the freedom that she really enjoys in Jesus would have been despised by these people with tender consciences. Do you see that? So don't let your freedom lead to people despising it because you use it unwisely. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So tender consciences, freedom. And what we should do is we should use our actions to edify and build others up. So my idea shouldn't be, I'm going to force my freedom on you. Rather, it should be, I'm going to love you enough to serve you so that you will be built up. Does this make sense? So I put myself second. Love my neighbour. Who who would have thought this is what Jesus taught us to do, right? So even if you're strong, you use your strength to honour the weak. Now, uh, who likes rope bridges? High rope bridges. Who's a big fan of this? I see one hand. All right, a couple. Yeah. Who doesn't like rope bridges? Great, I see all those hands. What happens when you're on the rope bridge is this. And you know the whole bridge starts doing this? Do you know? Because you're nervous, right? The whole bridge becomes, it feels worse. And so now it's shaking and now it's resonating. And you... and then what happens to the person who's very happy about rope, rope bridges? What do they do? They come on and they do this, don't they? Yes? So the one who feels totally confident, right, uses their freedom and their confidence to lovingly serve the person. It's not that at all, is it? This person suddenly is hanging on for dear life because the other person's having a ball. Ah, oh, you look really funny. No one's done this, of course. That's why you're laughing. But, but here's the thing. That is the perfect illustration the perfect illustration for what is going on here. Have a look with me at verses 20 to 23. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So you need to keep talking to God. You need to keep what you believe on these matters between you and God, and you need to not force your opinion onto others. And so you shouldn't be shaking the bridge if you're full of freedom you should be serving the one on the bridge by holding it steady for them. So what are some warnings? What are some dangers in this whole area of trying to be holy with freedom? Well, one of the things that we can do, and Paul talks about this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is the church decided it wasn't going to judge evil. It wasn't going to judge evil. We're so free that we're not even going to condemn anyone who's actually doing stuff that's demonstrably wrong. Now, church, that's not okay. There's some stuff that you know is wrong, you should call it out. So one of the devil's traps is to decide we're not going to judge when we should. The flip side is that we step in and we judge when we shouldn't. It's totally wrong of you to eat that meat. So now we've made a big deal about something that was actually disputable. Third problem that we can have is that we then divide on non-essentials. So all of a sudden, I decide there's a bunch of really lax Christians who are playing patience over there. We're going to form the church of no patience. That's pretty good, right? Okay, so we're going to to form the church of no patience over here, okay? And they're the the other church. They're, They're not really the godly people. So we divide around something that is not an essential That's the devil's trap again, division where there should be unity. There's another trap for us, and it comes from, in this this picture here, so Paul brings up two things. He brings up meat and drinking wine, okay? And here we have a uh, steak burger and a beer, okay? Which sort of sums up the idea here, okay? Now, for some people, this is totally clean. No problems at all. Eat up, eat, drink, and be be merry. But for some people, this is unclean where is that meat being prepared you shouldn't be drinking any of this alcoholic stuff and so it can be the same thing at the same time for some clean for others unclean and we've got to work out what to do so church conscience always matters and not just your own not just your own personal freedom you should look out for your brothers and sisters so rather than just stomping in and going, I'm free, I'm doing what I want, take the time to stop, observe, look around and think, where are other people in this group? How will I love them by listening to what their concerns are? Do, do you see? That's a, that's a significant change. So what are some of these disputable matters? Um, prepare your Caring Connect cards. Um, so what, what, they they fall into, they fall into a, a category like this. They're religious in nature they involve a sneer or a frown from other Christians, and they're a matter of conscience, not obedience. So they're a really tricky group. What are things like that for us today? Well, I've got, uh, I've got three, uh, three categories here. I've got the weak, the strong, and the unthought. I think there are some people who have what I will call soft hearts and tender consciences. I, I think it's a real shame that Paul calls them weak. Okay, They're genuinely God-honouring. But they have soft hearts and tender consciences. Another group called the strong, who have soft hearts and informed minds. So they're the strong. And then there's another category which is called Australians. Now I've called it unthought here. Which is soft minds and unformed consciences. Not really imagined by Paul in the Bible, but I think we're far more in danger of that. Right? That we don't think about these things. We haven't thought carefully and our consciences are just messed about by the world. Well, what what, what could fall into these categories? Well, what about personal devotion? Personal devotion. So, somebody might tell you, you need to journal every single day. Do you know what journaling is? Read the Bible, have a special book where you write down your thought from God every day. Every day. And if you're not doing that, you are not walking a holy life with God. Secondly, there might be the strong people who go, okay, we're not going to say you need to do that every day. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to commit every day to the Lord and I'm going to pray and devote myself to God. So that would be the strong response. <laughs> the unthought-out people would just turn up at church on Sunday and go, oh, it's Sunday. I guess I'm going to do religion for two hours. What about the Sabbath? Some people will say on Sunday, we can do church only. Church only. Okay, that's it. Then go home and lie on your couch and try not to do anything else. Church only on Sunday, right? Some people will say, well, I just want to have a holy day in my week. And so maybe i work a shift, and so my holy day is on Tuesday one week, and it's on Thursday another day. It doesn't have to be Sunday, but I want to set a day aside for the Lord. Some people might say, sport, parties, work, anything goes. Sunday's no different to any other day of the week. Or, or what about alcohol? Some people are teetotalers, which means they don't drink anything. No alcohol at all. Some people would say, I can drink responsibly. After all, Paul said to uh, Paul said to Timothy, have a little wine for your stomach. And I've got my cheese and bickies and a little wine for my stomach, right? Responsible drinking. Or some will make no difference in their consumption of alcohol from when they're a pagan. That'd be the unthought position. Or what about this one? Schooling. For some people with tender consciences, they look at the state of the world around us and they go, look, Parents should bring their children up in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. It would be right and appropriate for us to school our children at home. For others, they'd say passionately, one way or the other, they might say, we're going to send our kids to public school because we want them to be on mission for God. They need to know how to engage with the world. For others, they'd say, we have the opportunity to send them to Christian school so we will do this so that they might be brought up with all the help that the education system can give them in the context of the knowledge of God. And some people just go to public school because they don't think about it and that's just where kids go to school. Do you see how these can be debatable matters? Do you see how these can lead to a sneering or frowning at one another? We need to be very loving. I want you to know there's two things in our, uh, in our church here that we commend and not command. This is very important that you know this. We would love everyone to be in a life group, but guess what? If you can't do it, Jesus still loves you and you'll be all right but we'd love to see you at a life group. We don't command it, but we commend it. The other one is to say, we'd love you to join us in partnership in our church. Please do it. But you know what? Jesus loves you. And if you can't do it, not a problem. So what do we want to see as we finish up? Freedom and salvation. Don't add anything to the good news of Jesus because it's all been done by Jesus. Freedom and cults. No one else is Jesus. So if someone says, you must do this. If you're really a follower of Jesus, you must do this. Guess what? They're not Jesus rule it out. Someone might tell you that you really have to do your Bible reading every day or whatever it is and make it a rule. As soon as they make it a rule, forget about it. Freedom and devotion, we are all one in Jesus. I want to exhort you to holiness. I want you to follow God with all your heart, but I don't want you to be commanded to do anything. As a church, we need to watch out for either legalism or laziness. They're the two extremes of our danger. In Romans 14.1, Paul says, "'Except the one whose faith is weak "'without quarreling over disputable matters.'" And I want to leave you with this beautiful thought. I think the summation of what we've heard today is in essentials like the Apostles' Creed we did today. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, you're free. And in all things, love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank and praise you for your great goodness to us. Thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus. Help us not to rock the bridge for our weaker brothers and sisters, but to lovingly serve them that we all might stand on the final day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.